This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi. On the 5th and 6th of June, 2024, I'll be speaking at the largest AI event in Asia, Super AI in Singapore, at the iconic Marina Bay Sands. Alongside brilliant minds like Edward Snowden, Benedict Devon, and Balaji Srinivasan, I'll be on a stage exploring the extraordinary potential of AI and the profound change it represents, not just for financial markets, but also for the world as we know it. With over 5,000 attendees and over 150 side events, Singapore will become a vibrant hub for a full week from the 3rd and 9th of June. Visit superai.com to register. And join me with 20% off tickets using the code REALVISION. Use the link in the description and I'll see you there. It's going to be incredible. What's coming in markets in March? Welcome to Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Friday, March 1st, 2024. I'm Ash Bennington. Our guest today is Andy Constant, CEO of Damped Spring Advisors. Andy, welcome back to Real Vision. Hey, thanks, Ash. Pleasure to be here. Boy, we drew an interesting day here from the market gods. Uh, let's see, it looks like NASDAQ in an intraday high right now, uh, closing out. We'll see if it sticks as a, as a close on the high. Uh, some action in the treasury markets, lots to talk about. Andy, where do you want to begin? Sure. I mean, I think we should talk about what uh, what happened this week and what and I think March has, as you said, has a lot of very important news coming out. So, um, you know, this week uh, was actually a fairly low data week. Um, the. Um, you know, the uh, the the notable there were no auctions, there was limited except early in the week. And by the end of the week, all we were doing was dealing with month-end pressures. Um, but today, we had a, a fairly radical move in markets. And it wasn't just stocks. It was stocks, short-term bonds, long-term bonds, gold, oil, everything rallied. And when something like that happens, you have to think that this is um, some idea that money just became suddenly easier. And so animal spirits just bought all assets. And, you know, I look at the news and, you know, we woke up with Dell earnings, which certainly excited the, 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 the semis. Um, but we also started the day with fairly weak bond tape and uh, the um, PCE, which everyone had been interested in the prior day, which really was shouldn't have was fairly expected really had had no meaningful impact and um then we had a PMI data that came out pretty warm but that all changed i think triggered by the ISM data which was weak across the board now both of this data is survey data but it sure, certainly spurred uh, a rally in every asset 
Let me just bring folks up to speed on ISM if they didn't catch this number. Uh, it fell 1.3% month over month, 47.8. By the way, for folks who aren't following this as closely as you are, Andy, it's been in contraction, meaning below 50 on the oscillator since late 2022. Yeah, I, the ISM, you know, survey data is has become um, not much of a signal, frankly. It's, as you said, has been what... Uh, Ash means is that when the it's below 50, that says the economy is in contraction. Now, the PMI, which is a similar survey, shows the economy in an expansion. Um, but that, along with prices paid, which is an inflationary number, um, you know, got people thinking that the Fed was going to, um, you know, stay at three rate cuts for 2024. And right now we're priced, and, and so two-year notes and shorter dated interest rate product rallied 10 basis points. We can bring uh, up that chart. As a matter of fact, this is the five-day chart on two-year yield. Yeah. And that that chart shows that we saw a substantial rally mid in the morning on the two-year. And that's because there's it had been the case for a number of pieces of data that the and going back to December, where we had seven rate cuts priced into the two-year note, uh, that had reversed to just about three, a little over three, but just about three. And so now we're pricing a little more than three, closer to four rate cuts in 2024. And so the question is, you know, has the data, the ISM data, um, convinced markets that the Fed is going to at least stay the course on three rate heights. Cuts. Yeah, and, by, and, and by the way, if you're, if you're looking at that chart right there, what you're seeing uh, is the two-year yield expressed, uh, the two-year treasury expressed in a yield basis, obviously prices move inversely to yield. So if you see that drop there uh, in the morning, that is the increase in price. Right. So, you know, when you look at all those things, at that point, it was a bit off to the races. Long-term bonds started to rally. Stocks extended their already juiced rally on the Dell earnings. But gold and, and oil also took off. So let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, is that the uh, expectation of seeing those cuts and potential inflation? Is it a hedge play? Yeah, I mean... In terms of gold, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess the idea is that when it, when conditions are going to get easier, when the Fed is going to engineer an easier environment, it doesn't matter what asset you buy, you want to buy all of them. And you want to buy them because you don't know whether there's going to be more inflation or less. And so you buy some gold, but you also buy some bonds, which you know, should go give you diversification. And that was really the pressure. If we had seen inflation being the driver, you would have seen a different reaction in which gold might have rallied and bonds might have sold off. So I think it was more about, you know, people thinking interest rates are going to be cut and that's going to be supportive of all assets. Um, so the question is, you know, what evidence do they have that the Fed is going to change? And that talks, that speaks to what's happening in March. The first thing, noticeable thing that occurs is um, next week in front of the House Financial Services Committee and the Senate Banking Committee, Chair Powell will give his speech. And, you know, he can make news if he chooses to. 
Um, or he could just wait until he has the CPI data and the PPI data from the following week. But that that data will really dictate what will happen in uh, the FOMC meeting the following week, uh, which the announcement will happen on March 20th. And the important bit of that, so that, that's the, the rolling news that we're going to see through March 20th. And on March 20th, we're going to see what it all means. And the Fed isn't going to cut rates. We, that's out of the question for March. Um, and the press conference can guide however it's going to guide. But the most important data that's coming out on the March call will be the uh, quarterly refresh of the summary of economic projections, the so-called dot plot that the Fed uses to um, you know, just say what they each member, each of the 19 members think about the economy, think its direction is both over the next over 2024, 2025, and over the long term. And I think everyone agrees that inflation has been behaving extremely well, coming down as supply shocks have gone away. Um, and that's and yet also agree that employment is very strong. And probably until maybe today thought the GDP was strong. And so the question is, is the dot plot going to reflect three hikes or two hikes? Oh, sorry, cuts. Three cuts or two cuts. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Join over 5,000 attendees for the largest AI event in Asia at Super AI Singapore, June 5th and 6th, 2024. Raoul Powell, Benedict Evans, Balaji Srinivasan, Edward Snowden, and over 150 others will join the industry's most influential to explore and unveil the next wave of transformative AI technologies. Singapore will become a vibrant AI hub for a week from June 3rd through June 9th with over 150 side events that will make for unparalleled networking opportunities. Visit www.realvision.com forward slash super AI for 20% off tickets with the code RealVision or click below. You, you can be forgiven for that because we said that for like decades, right? We were yeah, in that mode. Yeah. Um, so is it going to reflect three cuts or two cuts? And I, it's a very interesting thing because the way it works is you have a voting committee and you have 19 members submitting their dot plot, um, and you take the median, and all it'll take to go from three cuts to two cuts on this dot plot is two of the members who are currently at three cuts flipping to two cuts. And so it, we're really on a razor's edge in terms of what the, um, the March meeting will signal. Uh, and so I think that creates a lot of opportunity in markets at this stage. By the way, I'm going to give you guys a free cheat. Uh, the pros are looking at something called WERP, the world interest rate probability on their Bloomberg terminals. But if you don't have $2,000 a month uh, to spend, you can go over to the Atlanta Fed that has the three-month expected average SOFR path that will give you a trajectory that's really close to what we're talking about here. And I think we're going to try and bring you that chart in just a second. But if you're looking at it right now, uh, it tails down from about uh, 525 to 550, down to about 350 basis points heading out to uh, call it fall of 2026. This is the interest rate normalization path that everyone has been looking for uh, since the beginning of these uh, 
well, just extraordinary accommodative position in uh, in uh, rates from the Fed for many, many years now. Yep. So that'll be the big news of March. And so the question is, what will it signal? Um, as I said, you know, the 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 markets are um, expecting continued easy conditions, while the Fed regularly will come out and say they believe that conditions are restrictive. And so it's an interesting dynamic to see uh, crypto making new all-time highs, equities making new all-time highs, uh, bond yields still restrained in terms of their yield, um, not high. Um, And credit spreads, in particular, at their post-COVID lows, um, you know, there's a a fair amount of optimism regarding the uh, ability to what has been, you know, the metaphor is land the economy softly with uh, inflation returning to target and uh, growth, you know, allowing jobs to remain fairly firm. And that's what they're trying to engineer. And right now, markets are certainly to after today are very much believing it. Yeah, Andy, literally, as you're speaking at closing numbers here, about 10 after four, uh, S&P 500 closing over 5,100 for the first time, 5,137. Uh, looks like up about eight-tenths of 1% on the day. Uh, NASDAQ taking out the 2021 high, 16,274, up over one percentage point on the day. Uh, Russell 2000, over 2,000, closing out the day, over 1% up uh, on a day basis. So obviously, this uh, this trend that you're talking about here, red, red hot. Absolutely. Markets are uh, doing extremely well. Yeah, I want to, I, NASDAQ 100, I don't have it on my screen. I'll bring it up in just a second. Uh, but year to date, well, here it is, year to date, NASDAQ 100, up almost 11%, trailing 12 months, NASDAQ 100, up 52%. Sure is. Yep. AI miracle is driving a lot of that, of course. Does it concern you? I mean, how fast it's moved, how far it's moved, maybe something about the concentration in a few mega cap tech names in terms of where these gains are coming from. Any concerns there? Or do you think that this is a a trend that is likely, more likely at least, than not to continue? The way way I describe it is um, you know, the promise of AI is in the future, and who knows what it will be like and what the big implications are. But when you look at all of the various stocks, all that have extremely great legacy businesses that deserve a fairly an above market PE, and then you add some more future earnings from on onto each one of those. Um, the valuation of each individual stock doesn't seem crazy. Um, however, and I think this is the bigger point, um, the the AI pie that that future revenue that all of these companies are vying for probably doesn't accommodate each of those companies' ambitions, meaning, there's a certain amount of pie. It's big. Let's assume it's big. It has to be big to support the prices. But Amazon needs its share. Microsoft needs its share. NVIDIA needs its share. AMD needs its share. 
Uh, Google needs its share. Apple is sort of decided now to go after a share. And all of these stocks are priced as if they're going to get their share and that their legacy business is not going to be undermined by uh, the share. So I find it interesting to think about um, each individual AI stock. You know, I can't argue if they get if they get their share of the pie, it's probably they're probably okay value. Uh, but I do wonder about the absolute size of the pie, which I think is um, has its limits with legitimate macro concerns about how quickly the overall GDP pie can grow and how much of that GDP can be sent to revenues for these stocks. And then there's the, how many slices does each guy get? And so, you know, I think there's going to be some accidents on a number of the stocks, but also some winners in, in that group. And so picking that is going to be the challenge, I think, when you're thinking about the AI space. Boy, that's such a great framework to think about it in this idea that at the scale that you're at, you need GDP growth. There's just no other way uh, to get growth in the revenue at this scale without GDP growth. And then you have the question about the allocation, the winners and losers among those divvying up the pie of this projected GDP growth to come in the future. Yeah. I mean, if you look at GDP, it isn't spent on tech. You know, the six biggest companies that we've been talking about you know, have increased their share of GDP from, in terms of revenues from 3% to 6% over the last five years. Um, and they've actually flatlined at 6% of GDP for the, the last year. Um, but you have to understand, it's not like that 94% is addressable market. You know, people still teach, eat, buy their car, drive their car, spend on military, all the various factors that aren't going to be parts of the GDP pie that AI can address, can start to take. Um, and the GDP only grows 5% a year on a nominal basis, assuming inflation is what it is. And so that's about $500 billion of pie for the whole pie. And Prior to that, prior to this year, you know, the pie that the these companies ate was uh, 300, was 6% of that. And so when you look at those sort of numbers, uh, sorry, 1.25 billion uh, trillion is the, is the pie, um, is the increase. And the 6% is like 75 billion. So there's, they really have to both get the GDP pie to grow and the share of that GDP. And it's unclear to me where it's going to come from. So, right. you know, when I look at that, I just say, okay, you know, these are huge companies delivering a great product, um, but they're priced to take a significant portion of more GDP. And the funny thing is, you know, companies like NVIDIA, 40% of their um, sales are to the big for hyperscalers, and those four hyperscalers are not planning on growing their uh, investment in GPUs anywhere near as quickly in 2025 as they did in 2024. 
So, you know, I look at it from that framework and think that these are great companies and many of them are going to be winners, but not all of them. Boy, Andy, we could do a three-hour show on just that uh, chat. It's funny. I don't know today. anything about this. <laughs> well, you know what I, what I was thinking? And look, there's there's obviously room for debate on a lot of these points. But the point that you just made there, at least my key takeaway from it is, when you're talking about numbers at this scale, when you're talking about revenue and market cap at this scale, it has a clear macroeconomic impact. You have to grow GDP in order to grow revenue because it's just so large. That's not the case if you're talking about, a I don't know, a micro cap fashion company, right? But what's also really interesting when we talk about macro is to think about, uh, obviously, what we're talking about here is the potential for productivity growth. Here's an interesting thing. You know, you think about it, revenue and wages are the flip side of the same coin, right? Real Vision's wages, Real Vision's revenue are my wages. And if uh, NVIDIA and uh, and Google come up with a an, you know a, an AI avatar to replace me. You know I don't work. So you start coming up with these questions uh, about what happens in terms of uh, you know wages sh- revenue shifting uh, from essentially from uh, from from wages to capital. The potential impact of things like marginal propensity to consume versus marginal propensity to save. Who's getting this revenue? What are the macroeconomic impacts of it? These are real material questions that I think we're probably in the infancy uh, of figuring out. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, you know, I don't, those are hard to predict and, you know, we'll see how that plays out, but I think that's the promise of future um, uh, deflationary productivity increases. Um, But it also has to be thought of in the context of uh, where does the revenue come from for people to, uh, and the, and the lost wages, how are those repaired? Uh, So it's a complex thing. Um, maybe we can bring it back to um, QT with Waller's speech today. Yes. So I think it's um, important to recognize that for about three months now, there's been ever since the well two months ever since the minutes from the December Fed meeting, there's been a discussion around uh, slowing down the quantitative tightening program, and I saw people that had uh, extrapolated that minutes question moments later into the um, reverse repo program going to zero by May, by March, and the um, and QT having to end by June. And I think since then, the Fed, the Fed officials that uh, talked about it are now pushing back. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Can you just ex- explain the significance of some of this? Because I know that when it comes to the mechanics of monetary policy, lots of retail investors get a little bit overwhelmed. First, unpack reverse repo markets, uh, what role they play, and talk a little bit about where we are in terms of the cycle of quantitative tightening, just to set the stage for people who don't follow this as closely as you do. Sure. You know, I think let's step up to the high level, which is the government um, spent provided the economy with a tremendous amount of stimulus stimulus in 2020 and early 2021 and that stimulus got spent and saved and remains in the financial system it's not spent anymore it's now mostly saved and so that savings um, is largely in uh banks in their bank deposits earning, you know, some are, some people get interest, but most don't. Um, and the rest is held in money market funds where people have been moving money to get interest. 
And that money needs to be invested. And banks uh, could pay interest, um, often don't, but they have an account. Uh, they take that cash and put it in account in, and it's roughly this, put it in, a, in the account at the Fed that pays interest to the banks. And the banks conceptually pass it on to their clients. Uh, money market funds also need interest bank, um, for the cash they got from their fund investors. And so they can invest it in um, T-bills, but they also need money overnight that's safe, like a bank deposit, in case their client wants to spend on something or invest in something and withdraws his money. And so the Fed recognized how much money they had provided the system. And so they created a essentially a wholesale bank in which they could would take money market mutual fund cash and pay interest on it. And that grew to about two and a half trillion dollars in by the end of the whole cycle. And then quantitative tightening was um, was um, um, announced and began in uh, so the in May of 2022. And ever since, um, what happens in quantitative tightening is the government issues bonds to um, the private sector, and the proceeds aren't spent in the private sector. They're given back to the Fed for the bonds that are, are maturing in their portfolio. And so that withdraws some of that excess spending, excess liquidity, excess savings that is in the financial system. And so that's and by the way, just down. for reference for folks, uh, we've gone from about a peak of around $9 trillion uh, in assets held by the Fed to now about $7.5 trillion in assets held by the Fed. So a significant diminution. Yes. And that's $1.5 trillion less, uh, less dollars in the financial system. And the uh, most of that has actually come from, actually more than all of that has come from the reverse repo programs shrinking from two and a half trillion to, I think it was like 440 billion today. Um, and some actually has leaked back into the banking system and is still there. So the banking system actually has even more reserves than they had. Um, even though quantitative tightening, this paying back the Fed, the money they spent on bonds is supposed to reduce reserves. It hasn't yet. And so the question is, how long will the Fed continue quantitative tightening? And what the speech today said, which I thought was fairly clear and has been what they've been communicating, is they still expect quantitative tightening to run for an extended period of time. Andy, that may be the single best explanation we've had on the relationship between the Fed balance sheet and the reverse repo market on Real Vision Daily Briefing. <laughs> I'm a little bit of a specialist on that, nerdy as I am. 
<laughs> we're going to have to have you back to do like a two-hour deep dive uh, unpacking all of this uh, for our Real Vision members. But I wanted to jump uh, because we've got some questions here that are very specific uh, to what's happening in the bond market, and I'd love to get them to you. The first one uh, comes to us from Marty F. I'm going to go a little bit out of order here, guys. Uh, the first one is Marty F., uh, who wants to know, what is Andy's take on tips for the next 12 months? These are the Treasury Inflation Protected Securities for folks who are new to this. So. You don't have to. The best thing about tips is you don't actually have to make a bet on inflation. A lot of people think when you buy a tip, you're making a bet on inflation. Turns out when you're buying a nominal bond and you're locking in the yield, that's when you're taking a bet on inflation. When you buy a tip, you get whatever inflation is. So you're you're protected from that inflation. So what you care about is the real yield. And real yields have been peaked in October um, at what I thought was a very attractive rate of two and a half-ish percent. And, you know, two and a half percent real yields for five, 10, even 30 years is actually a real gift. Um, and so they're not there now. They're depending on what maturity, the range from 1.8 to 2.2, they're not quite as attractive as they were. Now, that doesn't mean they aren't attractive, and it doesn't mean that by buying them, you are making a bad investment. Um, but the pressures on the bond market with significant amount of supply and the quantitative tightening that is ongoing, to me, means that you don't have to rush into these things. They're perfectly fine as a place to put your cash, um, certainly the shorter maturity ones. But I think there'll be a better buying opportunity when uh, by the end of the year. And so I'm looking for yields north of two and a half for me to start getting long tips sort of for, for the long term. Here comes another bond question from Eva D. Any views on TLT short term, Andy Gracias? Uh, she says, and by the way, I should say uh, TLT is the BlackRock iShares 20 plus year treasury bond ETF. Prices move proportional to price, inversely proportional to yield. Yeah, this is a fairly volatile retail way of buying long term bonds. There are more volatile ones. There's also levered versions of these things. But the TLT is sort of a, you know, a generic, highly liquid way of of getting long-term bond yields, nominal bond yield-like uh, returns. I'm short it, not TLT specifically, but the underlying things that relate to it. Well, frankly, the, um, the bond futures contracts that have similar maturity. Um, and why I'm short it is similar to the reason I um, don't am not buying tips, is that there's quite a bit of supply of treasuries overhanging the market. And the economy is doing great. Um, real growth is very strong. Inflation is, inflation expectations are low enough so that they are not super attractive, meaning that even if inflation continues in its decline, you're not going to get much principal um, appreciation in TLT. I'm looking below 90 to think about buying TLT. Um, at, they closed, or I don't know, they rallied a little bit today, I think 94-ish. Um, I'm short them, and I'm happy to be short them to get 
a yield that to me is when the 30-year bond yield is north of its October highs. So that's somewhere in the five and a quarter range. That's when I'm going to be more interested in TLT on the long side. But right now I'm short. Yeah, exactly right. 94 and change uh, closing today. Here's a question from Doug McKern. Uh, Andy, what's your view on DXY here in 2024? Uh, This is dollar index. DXY and the dollar more broadly. Yeah, uh, yeah. what a bore. Uh, DXY has been in such a narrow range. Um, And I don't, you know, I'm a little bit bearish on the dollar, but not, but I don't actually have a position. I don't really, I, I would speculate on it one way or the other. And typically with a cross that I like, um, but it's been a bore. So I'm going to say, gosh, I don't know. I, I'd like to see it break out one way or the other before I uh, it make any, you know, allocation, either long or shorted. And here's a fun question to end on. This one comes to us from one of our regular viewers, Ralph Humphrey. What three things aren't people talking about enough? One or two is fine too, but what pe- what are people not talking about enough in your view? Well, that's a good question, of course. Um, so much is being covered. Um, I think I think the things that are being talked about too much tend to be the tail events that might go out. So I I would just focus on, you know, is it possible that we can have a you know, an economy that can do something that it really has never done before, given the sheer size of of the forces at play, and that is soft land. Um, it gets a lot of talk, but I think it just working through how it if how it could even be possible that it could occur is probably work that's worth doing. Not that it's un, unusual. Um, the other things. Um, yeah, you know, I, I don't like guessing about unknowable unknowns. Um, there are a million that you could come up with. Um, so I'm not going to give you a great answer, unfortunately. That's the problem with 90 and uncertainty, isn't it? <laughs> sure is. Uh, Andy Constant, you just crushed it on Real Vision Daily Briefing today. This was uh, incredible. You were one of the few true specialists in abstruse areas of monetary policy who can explain this stuff to folks in a way that does not require a PhD to understand. Final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave our viewers and our listeners with. Yeah, I mean, I think the most important thing is that this is a period of time with great uncertainty um, and cash offers a, you know, a substantial return. And so you don't have to be at risk. That said, owning assets for the long term in a diversified way is also the right way to invest in the long term. And so I think you you know you should as instead of chasing as assets come to you, um, deploy more cash. But as assets run away, start raising some cash because cash is an attractive alternative at this stage. In a nice crisp summary, Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Sure, pleasure, Ash. Thanks for watching or listening to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Remember, if you want to access research from the pros, head over to realvision.com forward slash RV Marketplace. That's 
realvision.com forward slash RV marketplace to see what RV member discounts are available. We'll be back on Monday, same time, same place. See you all then. Have a great weekend, everybody. We hope you enjoyed this episode. At Real Vision, we arm you with the expert knowledge, time-efficient tools, and a powerful network to help you succeed on your financial journey. Get a taste of financial freedom with our free offer at realvision.com forward slash free.